Hello, I'm Suzanne Caprell, and this is Chanel and Muck Boots, conversations with extraordinary women who are your neighbors, co-workers, family members, and friends. These women are beautiful, wise, badass, resilient, have guts, and they get it done. Here are their stories. Today we have a fabulous and fascinating guest, uh, Cecilia Galante. Now, Cecilia is what we call local here to northeastern Pennsylvania. She has a remarkable life. She is a multi-times published author who actually got a thumbs up from not only Oprah, but from Forbes magazine as well, among many other accolades for her work. Cecilia is joining me today here in the studio, and we just kind of want to talk about her, her life, her dreams, and how she made it happen, and most importantly, how she got it done. Cecilia, welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm so thrilled to be part of this. Yeah, this is, it's fascinating. Um, Full disclosure, Cecilia and I go way back. Our our children, uh, my son Matthew and her daughter Sarah, we're friends um, going way, way back, and they're both in their mid-20s now, and it's just awesome to catch up and, and kind of see where our lives went over the last few decades. And I always remember you saying you were going to be a writer. You were going to be published. Do you really? I remember I remember the first <sighs> the first time you wrote a feature, and it was picked up um, by a local publication. Yes, The Times Leader. It was a bit, but The Times Leader. The Weekender, I think. Yes. yes. And The Weekender. Yes. And tell me... How you started and when this dream of being a writer started? Well, it's been a long time uh, brewing, I would say, all the way back in high school when I first read The Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger. I remember finishing the second to last chapter that morning before school and skipping first period class so that I could go into the bathroom (laughs) at Bishop Hoban and get into a stall, lock the door, and finish the book. It was that good. And I remember closing the book after I read the last word and thinking to myself, this is the only thing I ever want to do. Because I had never realized up to that point that, A, you could write about stuff like that. I mean, this story was about a kid, a neurotic kid who was literally having a nervous breakdown. I didn't know you could write about topics like that, mm-hmm. you know? They're, they were taboo yes, at one time. Yes, really, yeah. really taboo. And also, J.D. Salinger wrote in such a, um incredibly familiar, effective um, way that I, even though I wasn't having a nervous breakdown could relate to on so many levels. And I thought if I could do that, if I, if we're allowed to, to write like this, if I'm allowed to write like this, this is all I want to do. And I remember being, um, when I you talked about my first publications, um, they were pieces about um, domestic abuse. And okay. my Sarah's father uh, was a really, really abusive man. And Sarah and I had lived with him for after she was born uh, out in Long Island with him. And the abuse got so bad that we actually had to flee in the middle of the night one night. And we lived for a ba- in a battered women's shelter for three months until I could get sole custody of her and then come back here. But it was a really, really scary time. And I remember coming back here and trying to set shop back up and move on with my life. I was on welfare for a long time, a um, few years, and trying to get Sarah into daycare, which is where she met Matthew. It was just really scary. And I remember really trying to make sense of all of it. And one of the ways that I was able to do that was to sit down and to try to write about it. And so that was where one of my first pieces came. And I didn't know that eventually that piece would turn into what would become my third book, but it did. 
and um, things just started taking off from there. How do you start when when you say, you know, to make sense of, of the situation you were in, the horrific situation you were in, and you've got, you know, you've got your pen in hand and you've got this blank page, and how do you start even putting the words down? The scariest moment of writing any book is just be- the moment just before you start. And I think that's true the older I've gotten and the more I've – I'm a teacher, too. I teach at Wyoming Seminary. I've noticed with my own students, too. The scary part isn't being in it and being scared about where the words are going to come from. The scary part is not starting and all of the doubts and, and fears that creep up right before that moment. Because all the doubts and fears that creep up right before that moment, when you finally make that leap, all those doubts and fears can – paralyze you. It can make you get up and say, forget it. I can't. I can't. It's too big. What did you do? What did you do when you have the doubts and fears and you're you're like right there and it's like, yes or no? I'm going, what did you do to get yourself to push? I remember uh, writing the F word like 25 times, just writing it over and over and over again, just to get something down on the page because I was so paralyzed that whatever I wrote down on the page was going to suck. So I was like, you know what? Just write anything. And that was the first thing that came out. And from from those from that first sort of like, you know, exorcism of the fear, I feel like it was like an exorcism of my fear in verbal, you know, terms. A sentence came out of that and then another one, and pretty soon there was a paragraph and I was off. And you know what the scary thing is too? It happens every single time I I sit down to write a new book. And sometimes every time I sit down to write. Right. I've taught myself tricks along the way. Like I'll stop at a point where things are going really well. Like I'm in in the middle of a scene and I'll stop so that I know exactly where I can pick up the next day when I start writing again and I don't have quote unquote writer's block, you know, but I've had to learn those little tricks as I've, as I've gone along. Mm -hmm. Um, It hasn't always been, you know, that fluid and it's never, ever easy. When you wrote your first piece for the weekender and the, and the times leader, um, you wrote about your life. You wrote about your experience with domestic violence. Mm -hmm. Did you have to get over a level of shame, a level of fear of actually sharing? And, and I'm speaking kind of, in my own world, too, where people think, oh, you've got it so perfect and, and everything is so great. And, and, but no, I'm, it took a lot of bravery, I think, for someone to say, this is what my life is really like. And I'm not ashamed of it. You know, like I am not what happened to me. I'm my own life and I'm going to take charge of my own life. Yeah. And did you hesitate at all about sharing with your readers, with the public, that piece of your life, especially for those who didn't know it? Suzanne, I think you you just knocked the nail on the head with the word shame. Um, not only did I agonize over sharing what I had written, which was meant to be just for me, over sharing that with the public, but I remember, you know, I was with this Sarah's father for two and a half years, and I didn't tell a soul what was happening to me. And it was because I was so ashamed. I felt like it was my fault. And... If it wasn't my fault that I wasn't being, you know, for whatever reason that I was being hit, it was my fault that I wasn't getting out of it, you know? I remember talking to women later who would say, oh, you know, if a guy looked at me the wrong way, I would be out of there. And I just would feel like so weak, like a nothing, you know? Like, why hadn't I gotten out of it? Mm-hmm. Why hadn't I had the strength? The The truth is that every woman has the strength to leave an abusive situation, But when and where that is, is going to be only up to her. 
my moment came when my little baby girl was three months old and I realized one night when he was screaming at me and she was flinching in her crib and trembling, I realized that he was going to, she was already at three months old, terrified of this man and that nothing was going to change that unless I got her out of that situation. And that was the impetus that I needed to get the hell out of there. I didn't, I don't know if I hadn't had her, if I, if I would have left at that moment, but every woman has a moment Mm -hmm. and it's so critical. It's so crucial for us as women who aren't in that situation to just be as supportive and loving and know, let the woman know we are here when you are ready, no matter what. Yeah, and you know? it's not, we're not, we're here when you're ready, not when we not think when, you should be absolutely ready. Absolutely right. So with your books, how long was it before your first publication in The Weekender and The Times Leader? You know, so here you are, you're, you're going to do this and you know you're going to do this and you've, you've worked other positions in the meantime. You were able to support yourself and mm-hmm. you were able to support Sarah and give her an amazing, an amazing life and foundation. And... What made you decide and how did you go about with your first book? It's like, this is it. Now is the time. I've got to make this happen. Well, I was always writing, just writing, period. And um, I had, I don't know if you're aware, but um, I had kind of a unique upbringing um, being raised for the first 15, 16 years of my life in a fanatically religious cult in upstate New York. And I'd always thought... um, I hadn't always thought, but I realized pretty soon after, you know, my family moved here and we started living in the quote unquote real world that I'd had a pretty unusual first half of my life. And um, that was another way of me trying to make sense of the world was to write about that. You know, my experience growing up in this place and how strange it had been. And so I started writing about that. I came up with the manuscript and it took me 11 years to get it published 11 years. Oh God, 11 years. Yes. 11 years. It started with me being on welfare and collecting food stamps while working part-time at the Circles Deli on the square. Mm-hmm. Yes. Which poor Mr. Rudy had to fire me from because I kept forgetting to give the patrons their pickles along with their sandwiches. <laughs> And then I worked in a law abstract company doing um, <laughs> policies for, for homes being sold. And then I worked in the courthouse as a secretary. And then eventually I got my teaching certificate and became a teacher. But all those years and all that time, 11 years, I kept writing and submitting my manuscript and hearing, no, 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 this isn't going to work for us. This isn't, you know, this isn't quite what we, what we need. And then one day it happened. How and did I, it happen? How did you hear? My well, I got an agent uh-huh. finally, and she had written, read the manuscript and and uh, said, you know, this is something I don't know what it is, but I can't put this down. I love it. I'm going to get it sold for you. But it took her another six months. But I was pregnant with my second daughter after Sarah, and <laughs> I got a phone call. And just for those of you out there, aspiring writers, if your agent actually takes the time to call you on the phone, you can always assume it's great, great news, because otherwise they'll just either email you or not say anything at all. 
So I got the call and she said, are you sitting down? We have two offers from different publishing oh, houses. So yes, now, yes. So, <laughs> my poor husband at the time was so <laughs> nervous that I was going to go into preterm labor because I was jumping <laughs> around so high and screaming and yelling. It was really like a dream come true. Now, what was the book? What was the title the of this book? The book was The Patron Saint of Butterflies, which was my first novel. It's a, a, a sort of a loose reimagining of my time growing up on the um, the commune. And that was the one that won um, all those awards, best book of the year. It got Oprah's um, best teen read. I, got, I went on a national book tour with uh, my publisher all over the country. And it's still the, my book. I've read, written 12 books now. It's still the one that uh, sells the most. How do you come up with the content for your books? I mean, you have 12 books out there. Yeah. Your latest one is Strays Like Us, yes. which I have with me right here because um, I'm I'd like to talk about this a little bit. This this really resonates. And uh, there seems to be a, a personal connection. Oh, to all with of my books. With what you do and with what you write. Yes. 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 I know my my um, my publisher now said to me, I've, I've done three books with her. And she said to me last summer when we were talking about new ideas for books, she, she was like, ha ha, how about if you write a book about, you know, a two parent family and a really stable household? And we both laughed. But on the way home, I was thinking, you know, I really write what I know. And even though I did grow up with two parents, it wasn't a very stable household. Mm -hmm. And my relationship with my parents was very kind of stilted and awkward for a long time mm -hmm. because of the situation with the um, commune. So I think I've really gravitated towards kids in single parent homes, yes. you know, which um, I was raising my own daughter in, you know, Sarah for a long time and uh i just have a i just have a sense that i have this connection to kids that are going through big things in life you know the way i did when i came out of the the commune and everything and um i don't know i feel like my ability to empathize with kids that are going through things is what i do something that i have that i don't want to waste and putting you know, these fictional kids and stories down on the page in, in all different ways is something that I just want to keep doing. And it's something you went through, and it's something that you can actually share with all of your yeah. readers, and, mm -hmm. and it gives hope. And we talked about that before we, we started um, a little bit earlier, is that we need hope. Yeah. And, and there are examples here in your books that there's always hope. There's always a way. Yes. There's always a way to get through it. One of my, my, the biggest things, I think, that drives all of my books is from the original feeling that I got when I finished Catcher in the Rye. Yeah. And that was that I, I wasn't alone. There was somebody out there who somehow knew these neurotic thoughts that I was having, you know, even though he had voiced them in the, you know, holding Caulfield's voice, they were still some thoughts that I, Cecilia Galante, was having as a 16-year-old kid, you know, and I just couldn't believe it. And the feeling of not being alone in this huge, enormous world was something that I carried with me and still do for the rest of my life. And if I can give that to any other kid through my books just the feeling that they're not alone in these situations and these huge feelings that they're carrying around. It's its everything. It's why I keep doing what I do. Can we talk a little bit about your latest um, Strays Like yeah. Us? Um, again, I just, it's its just something that spoke to me, the title, I'm alone. <laughs> I'm a stray, and, and I feel like a stray. Me too. And, and give us an overview of the book. 
And what was the catalyst? What what triggered this particular book? I wanted to do a book specifically about um, that had a dog in it. Mm-hmm. My son is desperate for me to get him a dog, and I will not get him a dog because I know how it goes with pets. We've gone through all the pets that they swear they'll take care of, and then I end up taking care of them. So no to the dog, which is like having another child. But I thought, I'll write a book about a dog, (laughs) and maybe he'll forgive me. (laughs) But as is with all my books, um, I started with the dog and kind of loosely based uh, the dog character and the girl character, who I thought would just sort of be get to know each other and maybe develop a friendship. It became much, much, much deeper than that. And this girl who is newly a new foster kid because her mother has problems with um, drug addiction, um, finds herself in this new situation. And she's next door to this dog who's being chained up and abused. And somehow they find each other and create new lives um, together through all of the stuff that they're going through. So I really wanted to explore how an animal can change a person's life and also how a person can change an animal's life too. And again, you know, be that one, one more person in the world to make you feel less alone, mm-hmm. even if it's a dog, <laughs> you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I can totally and you're a dog person. That. So I, I know you can. I am a dog can. person. Yes. Yes. And, and they've, they've been a lifesaver for me many, many times. Yeah. So yeah, I love my, I love my, my pack. Yeah. As I, as I refer to my pack. Now, when you're not writing, uh, you're also a teacher. Yes. So you teach English Eighth at grade Wyoming English. Seminary. Yes. And then also at Wilkes University. Yes. So that keeps you kind of busy. How yes. long have you been teaching at SEM? Uh, this is my seventh year at SEM. Wow. Before that, I taught at in Wilkes-Barre Area School District. I taught at GAR and Coughlin for a little bit. And then I did three, four years at Myers High School. So I've I've been teaching for a while, and I love, love, love it. I do. I love it so much. I think I like the eighth grade year the best. These kids are just so – they're still young enough to – that you can reach them and get through to them, and um, they haven't shaped everything yet, all their opinions about who they are yet. Mm-hmm. They're still doing that. Yes. Um, but they're still also um, – they think they're so old and they think they're so mature uh-huh. and it's so fun and, and, and amazing to work with them because you can have these incredibly, you know, in-depth conversations with them. And yet every once in a while as an adult, insert something that, you know, you can see them mulling about in their own heads, you know, like, hmm, I hadn't thought of it that way before. And that feels really good, you know, to be able to contribute to their thought process in a way that maybe other people don't. Mm-hmm. And then what do you teach at Wilkes? At Wilkes I University? teach creative writing in the master's, uh, the MFA program. Okay. So I work with students that are getting their MFAs or their MAs um, in creative writing. So I work one-on-one uh, with ki- with students, I shouldn't say kids, they're students of all ages, some are older than me, um, who are getting um, that certificate, writing a novel or a book in some way. You have a lot of balls in the air, mm-hmm. obviously. There's a lot going on, and there's been a lot going on for many years. So how easy is it? Because <laughs> that's the that's the the statement I hear so often. Oh, she makes it seem so. It's just so easy. I mean, I know. she just the way she presents it. It's so easy, but that's not necessarily the case. It's you got to focus on your priorities, and those priorities can change. Yeah, it is about priorities. Um, 
I've, I, I realized uh, early on that if I had too many things going on, I wasn't going to be able to give 100% to any one of them. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd be giving maybe 75 or 80% to one of them. So actually last term, I stepped down from Wilkes University for a little while to take a break um, and just kind of reassess things. Um, I was really starting to feel pretty ragged. And um, I knew that I wasn't going to give up my full-time teaching job, and I'm never going to give up writing. So something had to take a a back shelf for at least the interim, and that's one thing that has. I'm hoping to go back to it somewhere down the, the line, but maybe not just yet. And that's the thing, too, I think, Suzanne, with a lot of us women, is that we have to know when to say when. Yes. Just and we like, have to know to say no. And to say no. Right. Yeah. And that it's okay and that sometimes it's the better, smarter thing to do, you know? Yeah. And one thing it's mm. it's taken me a few decades to learn is that uh, self-care is not selfish. No. It's it's vital. Yes. Who are you going to be taking care of if you don't take care of yourself? Or how well are you going to be taking right. care of others if right. you can't take care of yourself? And I yeah. can just, yeah, I remember years of just going, 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 and to the point where I wanted to give, 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 but I wasn't replenishing at all. Yeah. And as a result, I wasn't good to anyone. No. Especially myself. You so, can't. Yeah. No you, car can run on fumes. Exactly. You got to gas up. Now, you are a in, in terms of single mother again. Yes. So, I am. how is that working out with your kids, with the balance, with the working, with. It's definitely been an adjustment. Okay. The first sure. year after my husband and I divorced, this is my second husband, mm-hmm. was probably the most difficult year in my and my children's life. It was really hard to adjust to now two households and mom and dad not living together and all of our stuff, you know, our lives kind of being chopped up, you know, in a way and redistributed in a totally different way. But this is the thing about life is that as you move forward, and especially as you move forward along a new road that you really believe to be the right one, things have a way of falling back into place. And they really, really do. My kids and my ex-husband and and I are in a place now that I never thought all of us could be in. My ex-husband and I are good, good friends. We put our children before everything else when it comes to us. Our kids see that and they are secure in the fact that when they're with dad, they're 100% with dad who loves them and is there for them. And the same with me. And it's a new normal, but it's a normal that works and is conducive to all of mm-hmm. us. And all of us are thriving now, not just surviving. We were really hanging on there for a bit, trying to get our feet again. But we've moved past that, and we are rocking. We're rocking it out. Do your children know, are they aware of the life you had in Long Island? They know that Sarah's dad, who, Sarah's their older sister, so yes. they know that Sarah's dad was not nice to me. Okay. That's yeah. pretty much as far as I'll you know, get it, get into it with them. Sarah doesn't even know some of the things and she doesn't have to, you know, it's really not important. You know, she's never met him. They've never met. He disappeared after, you know, we left and never made an effort to get to know her or see her. So um, it's just as well. And it's fine the way that it is. And you just didn't stop. You fell down, you got up, you went down, you got up, you know, and That's the same with the, I I could say that with the bigger parts of my life, but I also say it with like every time I got a rejection letter, 
it was the same thing. I would I would cry. I would get into bed. I'd buy a pint of Chunky Monkey Ben and Jerry's. <laughs> I'd buy all these trashy magazines like Star Magazine and read like how everybody's lives, all these celebrities' lives were going to hell. And to be like, ah, poor me, poor me. And then after like 48 hours, I'd be like, okay, screw it. I'm getting back up. I can't sit here and just feel sorry for myself forever. And I would. And I think, you know, you got to sometimes lay down and cry and kick and scream and yell and shit. It didn't work out again. It's okay. The purge is fine. You can purge. Yeah, do it. Do it. Bury yourself in a pint of Ben and Jerry's or whatever you need to. But then get the hell back up, you know? It's okay. Just because you're down doesn't mean you have to stay down. Get back up. Find your legs again and start out. How many times, however many times it takes, but just keep doing it. You will. Every step forward, no matter how small, is progress. It is. You know, they say that you can never understand how all the dots have connected until you look back, not until you've looked forward, you know? And it's true. When I look back on my life, I'm like, yeah, I fell down there because it led me to this part. And I fell down there because it led me over here and there and it, it's all connected. It's all a journey. And it's, it's, it all matters. Even the stuff that you're in the mud for. Even the really bad stuff. Yes. The crap. Yes. You muck through it. Yep. Because you can make something out of out that. Out of it. Something good can happen. Yes. And, you know, I, I, I'm not one to always say, you know, there's a reason for everything because really bad, bad stuff happens to individuals, all kind of individuals. But it is if you can take what's happened to you and find something, find something in it that's service to others and service to yourself, then that wasn't in vain. Absolutely. Then there is absolutely something that comes out of it. What are you working on next? I'm working on a new book <laughs> yes. that um, I could tell you about, but then I'd have to kill you. Yeah, okay. All right. Can you get, kind of give us a hint, like a 50,000-foot overview, maybe? Um, actually, I'm working on two things at the moment. So, um, And one is um, I have two uh, adult books, uh, women's fiction. Okay. So th- what I'm working on now is a third, women's fiction. But I'm also working on another middle grade books, like Strays Like Us. Um, but it doesn't have a dog in it. That's all I can say. <laughs> okay. I understand. Okay. Now, what, what we're going to do is um, we're going to take the, the transcript of our, of our conversation today. Yeah. And it's going to be on um, ChanelaMuckBoots.com okay. with, with some more of your background and some photos, et cetera. And I'd also like to include what would you say to somebody listening today who is thinking, there, there's just no way my life... My life is just, it's, it's in the muck, it's, it's, it's in the worst possible place, and I don't know what to do, and I don't think I can have the strength to go on. I'm nothing. Everybody tells me I'm nothing, and I'm starting to believe that I'm nothing. I mean, can you give us one or two sentences to unstuck, how to get unstuck? I have been there. I have, I have looked in the mirror and thought that I was just a waste of space, that I didn't deserve to be here, that my time here on earth was a joke. And I have turned on the water in the faucet in the bathroom and washed the tears from my face and blown my nose. If you don't have yourself in this world, you don't have anything and you can't let yourself down. So look in the mirror, even if you're crying even if your nose is running, and say, I've got you, girl, no matter what. I've got your back. I'm here. 
take all the time you need, but I'm here when you're ready. Cecilia. And you will be. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much, Cecilia Galante. Thank you.